And what's interesting is at this moment in time that you are listening to this podcast, we're actually at the moment where two pandemics have clashed, right? We have obviously the infectious disease one, COVID, that we cannot uh, avoid. But what COVID has highlighted is the fact that those with obesity and other metabolic conditions, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, suffer far more severely with COVID than someone who doesn't have obesity or metabolic conditions. And so what this highlights is we within the field have known this, where it is seldom obesity per se that kills you, per se. It's the diseases it puts you at risk at. And now we see that this is the situation in COVID. So we're in this interesting clash of two pandemics of this infectious disease one and obesity. There is a vaccine for COVID. Hopefully, if people take it, it will disappear. There is no vaccine for obesity. It's going to stick around for a long time. So this is a, the pandemic. I call it a pandemic because it's spreading across the world that we need to really think about, seriously think about how we can sort out. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. I'm thrilled to be back after a couple weeks break because we've been having our charity auction and also our podcast live, which is coming to you next week. Now, in today's episode, I speak to Giles Yeo, MBE, a Cambridge University research scientist who looked at the genetics of obesity. And he looks at how our brains control food intake and play a critical role in modulating appetite behaviour. Now, in today's world, calories are ubiquitous and we can't seem to escape them. As a nutritionist, I see every day how my patients can be consumed by them. Yet, are we too fixated on them as a nation? And should we be looking at the wider picture? Sugar has been a big topic of debate for many years. And is there a concern with sugar and our health? I speak to Giles and explore the hidden truths behind sugar and why in a Western diet we consume it in such high amounts. Giles unravels a really important debate concerning calories and sugar. The Be Wells podcast is proud to be sponsored by the trusted collagen brand, Vital Proteins. Their collagen contains premium sources of proteins and nutrition made with the highest quality sourced ingredients. Did you know that collagen is the main protein in our body and represents more than 30% of all human protein content? It's the key component of our connective tissues and provides the structural framework that helps hold everything together. Our collagen production declines 1% per year after we hit the age of 25. That is why looking at how much protein you are consuming in your diet is really important. I am an advocate for putting food first. However, this may not always be possible in our busy and hectic lifestyles. Vital Protein's Creamer delivers 10 grams of collagen peptides per serving and you can add it to your morning coffee or smoothie, which is quick and efficient for many people living busy lives. You will find our special promo code details in the description of the podcast, so please don't forget to check it out. It will all be placed in the show notes for you. Please do head to www.vitalproteins.co.uk to find out more.
Giles, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for coming on today. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled to have you. I imagine you're really busy in the lead up to Christmas. So thank you for taking the time to do this. Important messages, I hope. I don't know. Maybe you're going to hang up after <laughs> I start speaking for five minutes, but that's fine. I absolutely am not. I've read your books and I love your research. So I know that I'm going to completely agree with what you're saying. But you are, for anyone who doesn't know, you are a Cambridge research scientist and you look at the genetics of obesity, but you also look at how our brain controls the food intake and plays a crucial role in modulating appetite behavior. Now, everyone is going to be listening to this saying, give me the magic bullet of how I can recognize you know, my own food eating habits. And it's a really big question, actually. So before we get into that, a bit about you. you. You were born in Singapore and you grew up in San Fran. Is that right? So I was born here in London, actually. Not here. I'm in Cambridge, but, but I was born in London <laughs> because my parents are Singaporean, but my dad was doing clinical training. This was in the early 70s. His clinical training in London, in King's College. And, and so thus I popped out in, in London. I spent the earlier part of my life here in the UK. Actually, I spent from one years old to about five years old in Newcastle of all places. I had a oh, Geordie wow. accent. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Then I moved back to Singapore, small little Chinese boy in Singapore, <laughs> speaking with Geordie accent. No one could understand what the hell I was saying. And then eventually after pinging about the world, we, we emigrated to San Francisco, which is where I did my high school and my undergraduate. Wow. Okay. So you have kind of lived all over the world in many places. And I read somewhere, and tell me this is true, that when you came to Cambridge as a postgraduate, you said that the food options were a bit embarrassing. <laughs> no, no, look, look, I, I, I'm not here to be rude about my, I've been here 25 years now. Yes, they were actually. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, it was a weird thing to come from San Francisco to then come to Cambridge was a, a shock because San Francisco is a big city. Cambridge is not. And they, at the time, it was very weird where supermarkets and, and did not open on a Sunday. So this was a bit of a shock to the system. I was going, what's going on? And there was, there was hardly any, I mean, there was food available, but hardly any of it was, was very good. I don't want to sound like I'm a food snob, but hardly of it was, was very good at all. Largely, I think, because of the existence of the colleges and people ate within the colleges. Now, I have to say, just to clarify, so, so people who live in Cambridge listening to me don't hate me, 25 years on, which is how long I've been here, I mean, there is, is night and day. I mean, now there is obviously a bazillion options and, and the food scene here in Cambridge. While not London, I want to point out, please. Yeah. <laughs> is is night and day. I mean, it's just light years away from what it was 25 years ago. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? And our food and nutrition knowledge has come on abundance in that time. So you were very ahead of the curve. So why did you start studying obesity all those years ago? How did you get into obesity? How did you get into studying this? As with most things in life, by chance. So I did my PhD in, if you believe it, in the genetics of the Japanese pufferfish. Now, listen. Yeah, I know. Correct. That Don't, is so uh, niche. It's very niche. It's <laughs> extremely niche. I mean, so what happened was I trained. Therefore, I was a good in, in genetics because it doesn't matter where the genes come from. Fish, you know, flies, human beings, genes are gene. But I did realize that studying the genetics of pufferfish was not going to pay my mortgage. 
I, I realized this early, early on in my life. So I left my PhD. Uh, this would have been 1997, 1998. I left my, my PhD trained as a geneticist. And so literally, I went in a department, I went knocking on doors saying, do you have a job? Do you have a job? The second door I knocked on was on the door of Professor Stephen O'Ratley. And he's still my head of the department, actually. But he had just six months before I did this, this knocking on the door, discovered the first of the genes that when mutated cause severe obesity in human beings. This is a gene called leptin. And so I knocked on the door and he had just begun to collect severely obese kids and he needed a geneticist. Ha, huh, lucky I was a geneticist. And so I said, do you have a job? And he says, actually, I do. And he called in my references and I didn't have two heads. This was all a good thing. And so I started my career studying the genetics of severe childhood obesity. So like... That's how I started. In effect, I went, there was a job. He needed me to start looking looking for genes causing severe obesity, very different to normal range of body weight. This is re- So just to give you an idea of what I mean by severe childhood obesity, we're looking at maybe three to four-year-olds who are, you know, 40 kilos. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot, a lot of weight. I'm 75 kilos. Okay. I'm working in kilos because this is scientifically we think in kilos. Yeah. So we're looking at two to three to four year olds who are two thirds of my body weight. And that's what 25 years ago we started, or 22 years ago we started studying and then began to unpick pathways within the brain. And we found out it was in the brain that really are critical for the control of food intake, hence body weight and our feeding behavior. And that's how I started. I started by chance. We had a couple of hits early on in the in the late 90s. I got a taste of success. I liked the field. Suddenly, 22 years on, has 22 two years has passed, and I'm still working on obesity. But while I still study severe obesity, I also study the full spectrum. So I'm, I'm now interested in not only severe obesity, but actually body weight in general. So the regulation of body weight just in general. So people probably listen to this thinking, okay, great. Well, I struggle with my weight. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be because of my genetics? Mm -hmm. What would your answer be to that? What would answer to Every single human trait and behavior will have a genetic input. Every single behavior. The question is how big a role the environment plays. Okay? And that is tricky because your genes are in very many ways static. They're the same the day you're born till the day you die. They don't move, right? So, you, so it's easy to measure them, easy to look at them. The environment is volatile. It changes from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you die. So that is the trick. So when people speak about, you know, do genes play a role in my body weight? Undoubtedly, yes, but so does the environment. And so it is all about your genes working with the environment that, that, that you're actually in. So the first cases we identified all those years ago that is a scenario in which you had a mutation in a gene. Okay, the gene was in effect deleted because of some rare mutation and it caused obesity. So that was an example of which a huge genetic input and really it didn't matter how much the environment had a very, very small role to play within that scenario just because of the setup. But that's very rare. Whereas for most of us mere mortals, okay, human beings, it is about Okay, so the range of the heritability, so it's the percentage of the, the, the role that your genes play versus the environment, ranges. It ranges from 40 to 70%. So it's not zero. So on average, it's around 50-50, actually. So 50% on average 
of your body weight and feeding behavior is going to be down to biology. Whereas the other 50% is going to be your lifestyle, how rich you are. Uh, do you work shifts? Are you a parent? Do you like to exercise or not? And so those are the environmental inputs that then influence the genetics of your behavior and body weight. And at the end, your final size and behavior is a mix of those two. It really does come down to choices, doesn't it? Because when we look at our environment so many times, there isn't that choice available. As If you're going back 25 years ago to Cambridge, you didn't have that choice as abundance that you do today of the variety of foods that are available. So that's a really good... It's not only a choice. I mean, the, the one example, and this perfect example of 25 years yeah. ago, imagine if on a Sunday night, okay? Yeah. Because there are no stores open. You fancied, <laughs> you fancied a bowl of cereal. Okay, but you had no cereal and no milk. Mm-hmm. So 25 years ago, meh, well, then what can I do about it? The, sh- the sh- 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 shops are not open. And so therefore, I have to wait till Monday. Today, you can, the shops are open or actually you don't even have to go anywhere. In the cities, I know here in Cambridge, I don't know if it's, if it's true elsewhere, you can actually go on to Deliveroo, other delivery companies are available, and actually <laughs> get someone yeah. to go to Sainsbury's, Tesco's, wherever for you and pick up some cereal and milk and deliver it to your door within the hour. So that is there as well. You don't even have to leave your house and you pretty much can cater to most of the whims, you know, as long as you're not asking for Wagyu beef, right? Mm-hmm. If yeah. you're asking for a bowl of cereal or anything like that, general food, you can get it pretty much whatever whim, whenever you want, as long as you can afford it. Yeah, it's an abundance, isn't it, today? Especially in our Western diet anyway, it's an abundance. And two-thirds of our shopping baskets are full of processed foods. So the choices that we're making aren't traditionally towards the more natural sources of foods, which obviously does impact our weight and how we're feeling. So within this, I really want to talk about calories because calories are ubiquitous in our world today. They are everywhere. And I see constantly in clinic people coming to me saying, I want this really strict calorie diet, but I can't lose weight. Or all of their day's planning goes around calories. And it's a very big marketing term. Now, can you explain firstly what a calorie is to everyone who's listening? Okay. So a calorie, put very simply, is a unit of energy. It's the amount of energy it takes to raise one liter of water, one degree Celsius at sea level. That pretty much, it's a unit of energy which should mean they're all equal, right? But and this is, always, this is always, ah, this is always the debate. And so you're right. We are in a situation where we worship the calorie. We do. <laughs> okay, we talk about calorie. We equate calorie with goodness almost in, in, in very many ways or less calories with goodness. But we have to remember, and this is a critical thing we can go on to discuss, is that what we eat is not calorie. We don't eat calories. We eat food. Our body then has to work to extract the calories from the food. And depending on what you eat, carrots, a steak, a donut, your body has to work more or less hard to pull the calories out of the food. So all calories are equal, like this this heat I'm telling you about. Once they are in you Mm. as a poof of energy, once it's actually absorbed into you, but while they're in the food you're actually eating, they're not equal because the total number of calories in a food is nowhere near the calories we actually pull out of the food to eventually use. So in a way, it's quite misleading. So when we see 400 calories on a packet, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're going to gain from that food in our bodies. That, that's correct. And what happens is 
it depends what you're what you're eating. Are you eating 400 calories? I mean, the original example I gave, 400 calories of carrots is not the same as 400 calories of donuts, which is not the same as 400 calories of steak. Completely. So how can people look at calories in a more objective way? I think we need to have a better way of, okay, calories is a piece of information. Let's not get this wrong. Okay. Mm -hmm. Clearly 200 calories of chips is twice the portion of 100 calories of chips. So it, it, it is within a food, it is a useful way of determining the amount of food in very many ways. But so is 200 grams of chips, twice the portion of 100 grams of chips. And we're not going around comparing 200 grams of chips to 200 grams of carrots. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is think about the components of the food, because depending on what the food is made of, how it's structured, you know, how much of the macronutrients and fiber, then the calories mean a different thing. And so I think calorie information is useful to to, to one degree to tell you grossly how much food, food, food is there. But I think we need to know about the macronutrient content in order to understand the quality of the diet and the quality of the food they're eating. And that is far, far more important than the actual absolute amount of calories that they're there to begin with. The problem is, Anybody that goes to the supermarket and picks a, a package of food off the, off the shelf, you know, the information is there because it's mandated that it's there, right? Mm-hmm. But they're normally in font zero. I don't have my reading glasses with me. I'm trying to, I'm trying at the supermarket to see what the, and even someone like me who works on, come on, I, I, I should know what the hell I'm talking about. You know, if I go home and you ask me, how much sugar do you think is in that bread? Or how much, you know, fat do you think it's in here? I haven't actually really looked at that that much. I sort of have looked at the traffic lights. Mm-hmm. Ooh, what did the traffic lights say? But but I think there is we while the information is important, I think there's too much of it on the pack. So much so that it is next to useless to everyday use, for everyday use. I think we need a better system of actually marking the nutritional content of food so that we get a better idea of the quality of the food that's the, uh, um, that is there. I think that's what needs to be better. So what would you recommend? What would you like to see on the, on the front of a food packet that isn't confusing? So let's go back to the types of food that we eat that we eat, and how hard our body has in order to work to, to actually get out the calories. So just as an example, all right? Let's take proteins. I'm going to speak about macronutrients because it's easy It's easy to consider them in isolation. But just be clear, we clearly do not eat macronutrients in isolation. We eat food, yeah. once again. But if we actually take 100 calories of protein okay, and eat 100 calories of protein, I don't know if people know this, probably you don't, that we are only ever able to use 70 of the calories for every 100 calories of protein that you eat because – the 30 calories in protein is needed, the energy, to sort out protein, to process the protein, to digest and metabolize it, to actually use it as, as something else. So protein calories are 30% wrong everywhere you look. So that's the first piece of information. Then there's other. Then you might ask, oh, okay, if I talk about protein, how about the other macronutrients? Let's deal with fat first. Fat is very, very efficient. That's why it's our, long, it's our long-term fuel. So fat, 100 calories of fat is pretty much 100 calories of fat. Sorry, guys. That's just the way it is. <laughs> so it tastes so good. <laughs> exactly. Now, carbs, 
it makes the difference if you're talking about the white powdered stuff or nectars or syrups, sugar, or if you're talking about complex carbs, all right? So sugars, simple sugars, are what we call 97% available, which means that for every 100 calories of sugar or nectar or honey or syrups that you actually consume, you will probably absorb 97 calories. So it takes three calories for every 100 on average for our bodies to sort out sugar. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're looking at complex carbohydrates, particularly with the presence of fiber, so wholemeal toast, for example, um, whole grains, et cetera, et cetera, then it's probably 90% available. So it takes 10% of the calories you eat, 10 calories for every 100 in order to actually sort out um, carbohydrates. So taken as a whole, okay, uh, a couple of things, our calorie counts are probably on average nearly 10% out. Just, just, just wrong, depending on what you're eating. That's the basis of it. So why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because the two elements of food that influence this caloric availability, so how how much calories you can actually get out of a food, the two components of food that influence it the most is protein and fiber. And if you actually then think about it and look at it, actually, if you begin to understand how much protein and or fiber, depending on the kind of food you're eating, obviously, is present in any given food that you're eating. And here I'm talking about prepackaged food. Clearly, if you're having a banana or an apple or a piece of steak, you're having a piece of food. But if you go and buy these processed food, ultra-processed foods that we actually eat, then to my mind, what is the critical piece of information? That are there three critical pieces of information. The first is the amount of protein in there. The second is the amount of fiber. And third, actually, is the amount of free sugars. And if you actually have those three pieces of information somehow restructured on a package and let you know how much of that you're eating, it's shorthand for the quality of food you're eating, right? Because if there's more protein and or fiber and lower in sugar, universally, that probably is going to be a better quality of food than something else. And those are the numbers that I would like to see highlighted more. I know they're there if you have a magnifying glass and you work out on the side of the pack. I'm saying that as part of the traffic light signals in the front, is there a better way of highlighting these? So I go, ah, if I'm comparing two prepackaged foods, oh, wait a minute, frozen lasagna, I don't know, something, okay? Two chocolate bars where you can look at this, oh, wait a minute, this chocolate bar has more protein. It actually has more fiber, okay? Compared to this, I fancy a chocolate bar today. Maybe Maybe this is the one that I want to buy uh, instead, no one's going to compare it to a banana. No. Sometimes you need a banana. Sometimes you need a chocolate bar, right? But that's the kind of information I think needs to be better placed on foods. I'm so pleased to use my favorite word, which is quality. And, and it's all about the quality, right? The yeah. amount. The amount matters. Obviously, it will matter if you're talking about quality food. But this is not what people are doing. People are equating the number of calories to the quality when that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really good point because. I do know that there are certain things in public health that are on for weight reduction where people go and they're community groups and they're all based on points. And for me, they're never looking at the quality of food. It's all about the points of food and how many calories are in them as opposed to the actual quality of the food. And we are currently in, and I don't use the word lightly, but an obesity epidemic in the country. We are. We are. We are, in fact, we are at the moment. And what's interesting is at this moment in time that you are listening to this podcast, we're actually at the moment where two pandemics have clashed, right? We have obviously the infectious disease one, COVID, that we cannot uh, avoid. But what COVID has highlighted is the fact that 
those with obesity and other metabolic conditions, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, suffer far more severely with COVID than someone who doesn't have obesity or metabolic conditions. And so what this highlights is we within the field have known this, where it is seldom obesity per se that kills you, Mm. per se. It's the diseases it puts you at risk at. And now we see that this is the situation in COVID. So we're in this interesting clash of two pandemics of this infectious disease one and obesity. There is a vaccine for COVID. Hopefully, if people take it, it will disappear. There is no vaccine for obesity. It's going to stick around for a long time. So this is a, the pandemic. I call it a pandemic because it's spreading across the world that we need to really think about, seriously think about how we can sort out. I completely agree with you. And I've not actually looked at the two pandemics colliding. And it's a really, I mean, obviously there's a huge link with obesity and the risks of getting COVID and obviously, and how you recover from that. But within those three points that you made, I'd actually really like to break them down because one was free sugars. And when we look at sugar now, I actually lived in New York for about six years, about 10 years ago. And there was a huge rise in the wellness scene there. And there was a huge rise in this thing called clean eating. And it was very worrying for me to observe by how we were completely infiltrated that this was the way to live a long, healthy life. And they were using a lot of recipes and juice bars that had, you know, lots of dates in, lots of maple syrup, a lot of argive nectar. And this was looked at as healthy. And then obviously when I went to go and study nutrition and we broke down actually the nutrition and the biochemistry behind it. When you look at these free sugars, they have the same impact as the white sugar. But the differentiation between them of how they work within your body, many people don't see the difference. So could you speak a little bit about sugar as a whole and free sugars? And what is the difference between them? Sugar is anything chemically with an O's name at this. So sucrose, fructose, glucose, right? So those are sugars chemically. But the sugar that you and I face pretty much every day of our lives, the vast majority of sugar, people can talk about other things, but the vast majority of sugar is sucrose, which is glucose and fructose kind of stuck together, okay, in, 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 into this. Now, it doesn't matter where it comes from it is the same thing, okay? It can come from the white powdered cane sugar or sugar beet. It can mm -hmm. come from the sugar in orange juice. It can come from sugar in maple syrup, in honey, in algarve nectar. Now, they taste different because of their source. Honey mm -hmm. is bee puke. It's going to taste different to cactus juice, which is algarve nectar, tree sap, which is maple syrup. And that's why they taste different. But the sugar element of it is exactly the same. There is no natural sugar and unnatural sugar. All sugar is natural, all right? It comes from different sources, but there is no difference. Now, the difference between free sugars and non-free sugars are a very, very different thing, all right? So I think the best example that I can think of is the difference between drinking orange juice and eating an orange. Mm -hmm. Now, incidentally, the concentration of sugar in an orange juice is equivalent to that of a soda, okay, of Coca-Cola, of, of all the drinks you can think of. And as I said, there's no difference. There's more vitamin C maybe, but there's no difference. And it bypasses your sugar limit a day. That's it. So what happens when you actually drink, drink orange juice is there is no digestion involved. Why would there be digestion? It's liquid, it goes into the stomach, and it goes into the small intestine. The moment it does that happens, the sugar, because there's no digestion required, the sugar just... It gets absorbed into the bloodstream almost instantly the moment it enters the small intestine, all right? Now, if you eat exactly the source of orange juice, which means the orange, 
say you eat exactly the same number of oranges it took to make that small glass of orange juice, all right? There are a number of different things that happen. First of all, you are chewing the orange. And by chewing, your body then begins to realize, ooh, food is happening. There's food coming up. And your whole body is then getting ready to receive calories, to receive energy. It says, okay, here we go. It's coming down. That's the first thing. The second thing is because of the presence, whereas when you drink the, the orange juice, your body has no chance to react, almost mm -hmm. no chance. The second thing that happens is because you're chewing in the fiber and the fiber goes through, it slows everything down. Take it slow. Take it slow. And that is very different, very, very important. Because your body has to work through the fiber to extract the sugars, exactly the same sugar, it takes longer for your body to extract the sugar over the exact same amount of sugar, but over a long period of time. And this has the effect of actually having a more a slower rise of sugar in the blood, and your body then deals with it slightly differently, even though we're talking exactly the same amount of sugar. So it does matter how quickly the sugar gets into you. And then the third thing about the fiber is because it travels further down, it also has the effect of making you feel slightly fuller, mm -hmm. okay? Because it just travels further. In fact, it goes all the way out, it comes all the way out the other side, right? Undigestible. Exactly. Exactly. It's undigestible. So you take the difference between eating an orange and drinking orange juice, and you think, well, it's exactly the same source food. It is. But the presence of fiber makes all the difference in the world. So that's the difference between a free sugar, which is the sugar in the orange juice, and a sugar that's sort of tied up, tied up with all the fiber. That is not a free sugar. And so when you eat, there's a distinct difference between having the free sugar, which your body absorbs almost immediately, and actually having it tied up in, in a fiber. And so when we're looking at free sugars, how can people figure out what a free sugar is? Because we are over-consuming these in such a high rate. Okay. Now, this is more complicated than you might actually imagine. Now, I know that in America, in American FDA rules, they have to distinguish between added sugars mm -hmm. and just a total number of sugars of which X percentage is added. Now, this, as far as I know still, is not a requirement in this country, okay? So you don't have to actually actually have it. So you look and you see the total amount of sugars, and it's very, very difficult to tell. So what you want to see is you want to see what else is added. They do tell you in the ingredients list what else is added. So you have to look at the ingredients list, not at the nutritional profile. Now, if it says high fructose corn syrup, if it says a syrup, if it says a nectar, if it says a juice, these are then added sugars and these will be free sugars. If, however, they include whole fruit, dates or figs or, you know, just chunks of stuff, well, then those are not free sugars. But Tell me, let me tell you something. They don't make it easy for you to figure this out. You've got to go home literally again. I'm, my, I'm telling you, this is an old man syndrome. Can't see. But it is not easy for someone in a rush. And this is the thing. No one goes to the supermarket to kind of hang out there. You're trying to get your stuff there. It is not easy. This is why I think it should be made easier. Yeah, it should be. And the thing is, I think many people feel that they're making conscious, healthy choices. And half the time, the foods that are labeled as healthy are the complete opposite. And there's this really misleading marketing tool now that where people think, this is what I'm going to have for my breakfast, it's healthy, and actually it's doing the complete opposite. But you have to remember, these manufacturers do a good job at making sure they're not breaking the law, right? So word gymnastics come into play. And not only word gymnastics, they also use visual gymnastics, right? 
you, you box of cereal, your food. They add strawberries to the cereal. Who adds strawberries to their cereal? I don't. I just eat the cereal, right? Or they put, ooh, if they if they have a burger, maybe they have celery on the side. And so what happens is they use visual cues, all right, to not fool the mind. I don't want to say it like that, but to make someone think the food is healthier than they are without actually breaking the rules. No, there's no rules about putting strawberries in, in your in your cereal or celery by the burger or anything along those lines. So not only do they use verbal gymnastics, you just it's very, very interesting to see what it's on, on the side of the pack and actually the visuals which they use in order to try and sell the item. Absolutely. And when we're eating these consumption, there's always this topic of debate going around, around sugar and obesity. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a bit about that? Does too much sugar lead to weight gain, basically? I mean, too much of anything will lead to weight gain, in truth. The issue is this element of caloric availability. Okay? So in other words, when they talk about sugar, I think we need to break it down and be more nuanced. It's going to be too much free sugars because, I mean, it's pretty difficult to, to end up with obesity by eating too many oranges because the fiber will slow everything down. At some point, you get full. You go, oh, my God. Whereas you can drink a lot of orange juice. That is the problem, okay? Sugar and sweetened beverages is That's a very it. good example. You can drink in a scary amount of calories in a very short period of time by drinking sugar. A scary number. Because you can drink a whole two-liter bottle of Coke, I don't even know how many calories are in there. A lot, okay? And what is interesting from an evolutionary perspective, I think is bare just reflecting on this, where we are designed to eat our calories and very seldom do we drink our calories. There are two exceptions. The one exception as mammals is we drink milk as babies, but our goal as a baby mammal is to grow as quickly as possible to stop becoming tiger food. So that's fine. Okay. And then we start eating solid foods. And second, probably in honey is probably the only other example, naturally occurring honey or some of the nectars that are there, but you don't no one was going to drink liters and liters of the stuff. No. And the last thing you're going to want to do is to juice your fruit because what equipment do you have? What? A, you're going to eat the fruit. Out comes that Nutribullet in there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so, so actually the concept of drinking the calorie, drinking our sugars is a modern phenomenon. And mm. so sugar per se is not bad for you. It's our base fuel. Okay. This is, I'm not a sugar Nazi. This is not what I'm saying. Our problem, primarily my problem is with drinking the sugar. Because as I said, if you eat the sugar, particularly ones with fiber in it. If it's a whole food. That's it. It's a whole food. When you're eating it, your body will self-regulate it. Drinking the sugar, very little regulation involved. That's why it's actually linked linked to obesity. And so many of these are also marketed health products because if you look at smoothies or the juice bars that have opened up everywhere, a lot of people then consume smoothies alongside their meals. And that does have a really high intake of sugar at the same time. It is a high intake of sugar. I mean, some people might argue that way, well, depends how you make the smoothie. Some people might argue, yeah, but the fiber is in there. There is some fiber in it. Yes, I agree with that. But there's a distinct difference. The smoothie has also been completely mushed down. So some of the action of the chewing, there is no chewing with the smoothie. You're eating that as well. So, so I think there is a distinct difference between the eating action of it. A smoothie is better than an orange juice. Yes. Except when you put orange and apple juice into the smoothie as well. Obviously, you add, add everything. But it is far better to be eating fruit. I, I don't want to sound like some middle class, but it is going to be far better to be eating fruit than to be drinking the juice or the pulp of, 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 of fruit. It's true. If you just break it down and you take out everything that's in that smoothie alongside the meal that you're eating, it's a lot of food. And our portion control seems to have become quite skewed, I think. 
generally with how much we're consuming. Sometimes we're not that mindful of actually how much we are consuming. And that is another leading factor, I believe anyway. It is. It, it is going to be a leading factor because at the end of the day, we are evolved to recognize foods that we, we look at. Whereas if it's in a smoothie state, a juice state, there is going to be a disconnect between how much nutritionally, how much do you think is in there? Just looking at it compared to if you're actually looking at a specific set of foods, because that is what we evolved to do, to look to say, well, how much food might I need to eat? And you eat that versus something which there is a disconnect. And so leading this, I mean, obviously we are consuming a lot of sugar and we know that in our Western diets. And many people, and I do have a problem with this word, but many people do say, I feel very addicted to sugar. Mm. Now, sugar has been branded addictive. I think that can be a very misleading word. There's some truth underlying it, but I think the word addiction can be quite misleading. I mean, a lot of people say it's like crack for the brain. What's your thoughts on this? Like, is sugar addictive? And why do people crave sugar? Why do people feel they've got sugar addictions? Okay. So I, I am not an addiction expert, but I have colleagues of mine who are, who are actual psychiatrists that study addiction. And what they tell me is if you actually look that addiction of any kind of food doesn't actually exist mm. per se. Okay, now hold on for a second there. Because it doesn't fulfill the strict criteria of what an addiction is. Now, where this has come in is the fact that um, eating food generally tastes, it makes you feel nice. It should. This is why you keep doing it. And sugar in particular makes you feel really nice. That's why we like to eat candy and, and, and stuff. And when something feels nice, the part of your brain, the nice part of your brain called the hedonic region of the brain lights up. Okay. Now this is true whether or not you are eating sugar, smoking a cigarette, drinking alcohol, that I'm not equating to stop. I'm not equating eating to any of this, but to depending on who you are, some of those things feel nice and they will light up that part of the brain. And so this is where the addictive concept has actually come from. We can go cold turkey on a number of different things. We can't go cold turkey on food. Okay, so, so that, that is part of the problem. Now, that being said, you can probably wean yourself off sugar. You can't wean yourself off food because you need food. Survival. Exactly. But sugar and the taste of sugar is something very different. All right. This is a couple of interesting things. So first of all, in children. I mentioned earlier that when a baby mammal is born, it needs to eat, it needs to eat as much as possible to grow quickly. Otherwise, it will get eaten, right? Or, or something else, something else would, would happen. Baby mammals can eat horrendously sweet food without that adults will taste and going, oh my God, my pancreas is just dissolves. Whereas the baby can eat really, really, really sweet foods. Then what happens is this is true for all mammals. Then what happens is as they mature, their palate matures. And we know this from the fact that suddenly I can drink coffee. I like my coffee black. I just happen to do, but I like the bitter flavor. Or you'd maybe drink a beer, all right? And beer go, ooh, there's that bitter feeling, which a child would drink and go, blah, 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 right? And so this is the maturing of the palate. So the first thing is that a child is going to be looking for sweet foods. Now, in the past when it was not available, this is not a problem. Today, it's available everywhere. Now, the problem is this is then a reinforcement and a learning tool. And so if you then have a lot of sugar as a child, then you learn to like the sugar as an adult. So this is a self-fulfilling vicious cycle. Now, you can actually unlearn some of these things because these things are learned to begin with. Classic example is you can tell from different cultures, we like different types of food. Okay, so just in terms of I'm ethnically Chinese, and so my favorite type of carb is rice, all right? Me and bread, meh, 
you know, I'm neither here nor there, whereas my wife loves bread, right? And so that's a classic example of there being, clearly I learned to like rice as a child, whereas my wife learned to like bread, okay? And so if you learn it, you can probably sort of wean yourself off the flavor of something like, of something like sugar. And it's been shown that if you step it down slowly, that we probably don't need as much sugar as you might actually imagine to find food palatable. So I think something like sugar, unlike food in general, we can probably learn to wean ourselves off. And so what would you say to anyone who just says, at three o'clock, I have such a slump that all, all that will satisfy me is some chocolate or a donut or whatever is palatable to them in the sugar sense. What would you say to these people that really feel that they struggle to not go to the biscuit tin at three o'clock in the afternoon? All right. That might seem like an easy question you've just asked, and it is not. It's really difficult. It does depend on who you are, okay? And it depends on what mood you're in. People don't put enough cachet on what you actually feel. Because if you're feeling good okay, about yourself at that time, you are actually able to make some more difficult decisions. Okay, At the time where maybe I should just replace the chocolate bar with a banana, I still think that's kind of a silly thing to say. But actually, there's sometimes you can actually change the kind of food that you actually want. Suddenly, if you are in a bad space, if you are stressed, if you are um, unhappy, for any number of different reasons, that decision becomes more difficult. Almost always, okay, it becomes more difficult. You say, hang it, forget it. I'm going to have a, a slice of this. So I think you've got to take, you've got to put yourself in a position that you're in. Now, if you are feeling good and life is go, go, going okay, well, then I would try harder to try and say, well, maybe I should be eating something else other than the chocolate. And the classic, the easiest way strategically to do this is not to have the chocolate in the house or not yes. to have the cookies in, in. So if it's not there, if strategically before you're craving it, if strategically you have put other things in place, apple, banana, something else, dates, something else, then you're more likely to eat with that. Mm. However, if you are feeling bad about something and you are really in a bad space, I think you got to take it easier on yourself. You know what I mean? I, so I do think that having a one-size-fits-all scenario in that case is unhelpful. I think you're going to be in a better headspace sometimes to make the healthier decisions. When you're not in that good headspace, maybe you need to make another decision. So I think that is my nuanced answer. Well, I think that's brilliant because there's never, you never make one choice of I'm not going to have chocolate at three o'clock anymore again. But you have a decision to say, I'm going to allow myself to have easier options where I'm going to prepare and I'm going to give myself a better variety of choice than as opposed to three o'clock, my habitual habit has just to be to put my hand in the cookie jar because that's there and it's a habit. And unless you remove that habit... Remove the habit. Change the environment you're in. If you change the environment, you can change. It's difficult to change the environment when you're in a restaurant with your friends, but then you're out with your friends. Yeah. Then do what you got to do. Yeah. The office, your home. These are scenarios you can control. You can strategize. And this, after all, is the majority of our lives, the boring mundanity of life. Control that environment strategically put yourself in a position where when you suddenly reach for something, you don't have to make the choice because you've already made the choice when you had the wherewithal, you weren't hungry, you weren't craving it. Make the choice beforehand so that it makes the choice when you finally get to it slightly easier. Absolutely. And so I want to kind of take this into an overall diet and how it should really look and what are the benefits of getting a whole balanced diet? Because you did on the BBC, you did a show called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And I say plant-based because actually I read a a really good article where you said I didn't go vegan because vegan can mean a whole variety of foods, which I completely agree with. It doesn't mean that it's just plant-based. So you went for a pure plant-based diet for 30 
days. So what happened? So, well, a couple of things I had to relearn how to do cooking <laughs> slightly. No, what, what I then realized, interestingly, what I realized was I was very scared because I am a meat, I, I love meat. Okay, I'm just, just putting it out there. I do love my meat. And what I realized was if I tried to replace the meat with something else, so say a bolognese, if I called it a bolognese, but replaced it with lentils, and people do do this. I'm, this is just me I'm talking about. I do this, yeah. I miss the meat because it's, I said to myself, I'm having plant-based spaghetti bolognese, but the word was bolognese. Whereas if I actually, this is for me personally, this is my strategy. Whereas if I cooked food that didn't actually, wasn't designed to have meat there to begin with. I like, I'm Chinese, so I like tofu. I yeah. use more beans in a, in, in a chili. I, I call it a bean chili, for example, actually. And it was nicely spiced. Taka dal, you know, if you actually have, have, oh, the, yeah. have the curries. I actually yeah. didn't end up missing the meat that's much. I miss eggs more than I actually miss, miss meat. So anyway, to that, as background, no, I actually ended up losing four kilos of weight and my blood cholesterol level dropped by about 12%. Just on 30 days, I did not limit the amount I ate at all. Okay. I did not. And actually, grossly speaking, by weight, okay, I ate a lot more food because you got to eat a lot of lentils to match the calorie in a This in, is my in, first in thought. Thing. You have to eat many more carbohydrates when you're normally on a vegan place, plant-based diet. You definitely eat many more carbohydrates, but if you actually end up eating a lot of beans, a lot of things, and, and what have you, it is bulkier. It is, because of the presence of fiber and everything else, it is far less calorically available. So in other words, steak's a bad example, because that's not a very caloric example. A donut, just as an example, all right? Where if you're having that, well, then a lot of the calories are going to be very, very easily available. Whereas when I ate this plant-based diet, I ate so much fiber. <laughs> I mean, Your gut must have loved you. Your oh man, A, I became jet propelled. But B, <laughs> my guts had never been so happy in my, in my entire life. I lost the weight. And I lost the weight evenly over the period of time, the four kilos. But what was in really interesting, what was really interesting was then at the end of the 30 days, I said, woo, I was very happy. I weighed myself, you know, as you do. And then, then on a weekend, I then said, oh, I had a curry and then I had a roast and then I had things. I gained back half the weight I lost in five days, at which point I said, ooh, hang on a second. Did I really go through this whole thing? And so I took stock. I really did. So this is almost a Damascene, you know, moment. I took stock. I said, Oh, hang on a second. What's going down here? And so I then took a decision. I, I couldn't have sustained the plant-based diet for forever. I just couldn't. Mm. And I'm just being honest with myself. And so what I am now is I am flexitarian. So in other words, two to three times a week, I eat plant-based in the evenings. You know, I'm not religious about it, but that's what I do. And the weight went back off. I'm, you know, maybe I maybe I put back in total a kilo above my total plant-based weight, but I feel better. I feel healthier. A, it's better for the environment anyway. I think it's been better for my for my health to be plant-based a few times a few times a week. That's, so that's my strategy personally. I think the flexitarian approach is really becoming much more abundant. I think we have this really worrying thing where we have to pigeonhole people into certain diets and we shouldn't have that. I think we should really listen to our bodies, listen to what we need, listen to what we want. And actually, if we need eggs on that day or we need meat on that day, say you have a heavy menstrual flow and you're a woman, then actually you will need to maybe consume red meat in that day for your iron levels. And it's the same thing with maybe for working out and maybe you need to get a good amount of protein in and a quick source that you make these decisions based on, I think, what's right for you. And I guess a lot of your research is around everyone being so individual 
That's exactly right. I mean, so the people who hate me the most on social media are actually the militant, militant, I know plenty of people who are vegans and plant-based, the militant vegans and plant-based people who, is their way or the highway? Yeah. We don't need, as I said, the militant crew. I know many people who are vegan and plant-based and they don't come tell me what to do and they do the thing and they do it very healthily. We don't need the whole world to be vegan. We need everyone to eat 20% less meat. That's what we need. That's what we need people to do. And shop locally. Shop locally, eat seasonally. All of these things also really affect, you know. Roll in and, and come into the, yeah. Exactly. Even if you're a plant-based eater, but, you know, you're buying all of your fruit and veg out of season, then you want to- From Peru? Go- if, if, yeah. if, your enti- if, if your entire <laughs> plant-based diet comes from Peru as an avocado or whatever it yeah. is you eat, how is that helping anybody else? So it was interesting. During the COP26, which is obviously just, just recently, we had Cambridge University had some, ran some events. Now, I'm not an environmentalist. Oh, no, no, sorry. That came out like I'm, a, like I'm a carbon burner. I'm not an environmental expert. That's what I mean. Yes. Um, yes. But I hosted a couple of discussions, including one panel about what a sustainable and climate diet was. And it was very interesting about, is it necessarily being plant-based? And undoubtedly, you know, eat, eating too much meat. But it was interesting because then I had experts there. I was just a chair. Where we then were talking about understanding the whole food system. It is far it's important to not only say that I'm eating X, therefore it is better for me or not. You have to understand the whole food system. Where has it come from? How much packaging has come in? Where did it, you know, how much, you know, who is suffering from it? You have to understand the whole food system in order to do it. And I think the analogy, that's environmental, but I do believe that you also take that analogy with the quality of your diet and your health. You want to look at the whole system. Don't look at just an individual meal right? Because mm-hmm. fine, it's Christmas day. The other thing that people always ask me says, ooh, how do I make sure I don't gain weight during Christmas? This is a good topic. Yes. It is a good topic. We're running up to it. I said, well, look, any given meal, even your Christmas meal, is not going to change your weight or your health. The problem is not Christmas day or even Boxing Day. The problem is the 30 parties before the 30 <laughs> parties after. So, so I think <laughs> you've got to be, yes. exactly, be sensible about that. But don't. I mean, have your pigs and blanket on Christmas Day, please. Your roast potatoes. Because it's the celebratory day, rather than doing something stupid like saying, well, I'm going to die on Christmas Day. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. It's the whole, it's the long-term approach, isn't it? And I really believe that is kind of the harmony that we need to get to with our diet, that it's not all or nothing. It's actually about balancing it. Your whole diet and your whole, the quality of your diet rather than any individual meal per se, so that you know you can have, you can have an, in inverted commas, unhealthy meal. In other words, you can go and overindulge because it's a holiday, Christmas. And then on the days when it's your mundane life, we'll try and have, have better decisions and, and better strategies. And together as a total, then you can have a healthier lifestyle. That is my view. Rather than being religious and evangelical and you have to do this, uh, that about it. I think that's a road to failure. I completely agree with you. And this leads me on to my penultimate question that I love to ask everyone, actually. And I think lots of people are going to want to know this about you. How do you live well and be well? <laughs> I have to say, do as I say and not as I do. No, that's not true. So my diet, look, and I'm open about what I love I, and I post about it and what have you. And I do love, I have an unfortunate taste for fatty foods. I do, I'm going to tell. And so I try and, and mix that in. I try and have the, 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 the richer foods on the weekend and try and eat healthier in the week. That's what I try to do. I also like to move a lot. I like to do my exercise. 
Now, just before anyone says anything, your ex- exercise is not particularly good at weight loss. Say please, you said that. <laughs> it, it just isn't. It's good to help weight maintenance, but irrespective of whether you lose a single ounce of anything, exercise is good for you. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. It's good for all the health, independent of your weight. So what I try and do is I try and be have a balanced diet. It sounds so boring to say, but I try. I really do. It doesn't sound boring. I feel like you're an anomaly at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I tend to do all the cooking. So I, I, I tend, largely I cook. The one night of the week I have takeaway is Friday night. Um, but otherwise, I, I cook every single day. That allows you to actually make better decisions because you know exactly everything you're putting in, how much sugar, how much salt. And so you know exactly what you're eating. And so be balanced. And I try and move a lot. And so th- that is my... Once again, the most boring thing in the world of trying to stay healthy as I'm 48, going to be 49 this, this coming year. I know that you know you got to look at the you got to look at all the markers and all the things. And so, with that, with a half an eye on that in mind, that's what I try to do. That's fantastic. And what's your New Year's resolution? I feel like it's a good time to ask. Oh my goodness, I haven't thought about this actually. What is what is my New Year's resolution? As with everything else, it is going to be the problem much to say, I'm going to try and be better with my diet and try and move more. Isn't it terrible? It's not. It's a brilliant one because you're not putting yourself under too much stress. I think that's great. I mean, mine is trying to learn a new recipe every week. Ooh. Now yeah. that is a, so, so my wife will have something to say about this as well. I think she wants me to make more, a greater variety of plant-based foods. I think my problem, okay, okay. In fact, in fact, this, since we're in a confessional, I think this is my, this is my thing. Well, I am not afraid of plant-based days because I go in the supermarket. I know what I, what I have, but I don't know. A, I need a larger variety of plant-based foods, plant-based recipes at my fingertips, which I don't have. That is, there we go. I've changed my there new year's resolution. That's it. A larger range of plant-based recipes. And then can you share them with us and we can, we can cook them as well? I will. I will share them with you. <laughs> Thank you. So, Giles, where if everyone's going to want to know more about you, where to find you if they don't already, can you please let everybody know what your handles are, website, books they can buy? My actual university uh, website, you probably not want to visit, but but my <laughs> handle is just my first and last name, Giles Yo, altogether. That's my handle for pretty much all of my social media things. I've got two books out. One is called Gene Eating, and that is about fad diets. And the second one, which was just published this year, is called Why Calories Don't Count, what we were talking about today. Available at, don't have to go to Amazon if you don't want to, available at, at all bookshops everywhere. Amazing. Does I'd actually love to get you on for our next season next year. I always dispel fad diets. This is a really big kind of passion of mine. That's how I started, actually. And I'd love to get you on to talk about the fad diet thing as we're going to be going into January. I'd love people to actually know, you know, what to avoid and what to stay clear of and actually what the effect it's going to have on their body. I would be delighted to come back on. This has been great fun. Oh, thank you so much. Well, there you go, everyone. Next year, we'll have a whole podcast on fad diets. I think that will be just what everyone needs to hear in January. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I hope you enjoyed that that conversation as much as I did with Giles. And if you did, please do leave a five-star review. It means so much to me and the podcast, and it really does help spread the word. I hope you all live well and be well until next week, where we will be releasing our season finale 
podcast live for season six. It will sadly be the last one of the year, but not to worry, there will be season seven coming out. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.